Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, as always, Chris Chinchilla. I have a quite interesting interview this week with two of the co-founders from Pixie Labs, a new, um, well, a newish contender in the observability for Kubernetes ecosystem. Quite a buzz about them right now. So that interview is coming up very soon and you can look forward to that. Hope everybody is well. We're in the November gloom here. It's it's not... Anyway, yep, <laughs> let's focus on the uh, cheerful, positive things. Um, I hope any of my listeners and viewers in the States uh, are okay with, um, with the results there. Uh, I hope um, those of you who are interested in Apple products are interested in the latest developments there. It's actually something that did appeal to me. I did my first uh, Apple event uh, live tweeting in quite some time. I've been a Mac user for a very long time, so I've been through the 68,000 transition, then the PowerPC transition to Intel. So it was interesting to also see a few names like Universal Binaries and Rosetta come back. <laughs> I've not seen them for some time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just bought a, uh, I'm gesturing at it here, a new um, MacBook Pro this year, so slightly annoying, but whatever. Um, I'm actually pretty happy with it, so I'll hold on to it for a little bit longer yet because I think it'll be a little while before I want to switch to a new processor architecture quite yet. Anyway, but yep, been an interesting week in technology. I'm going to round up my links first before the interview, some slightly different things than uh, the Apple event, um, but I felt like I had to mention it. <laughs> and yeah, let's get started with my links for the week. So... Actually, firstly, something from uh, just over well, about 18 months ago, actually, from Louis Levere, Immutable Systems. Um, I've been sort of uh, playing around these ideas. I'm obviously a Mac user, so I don't really engage with these Linux systems so much, apart from testing and things like that. But this is operating systems like uh, NixOS. Also, the latest version of Fedora has this concept where uh, an operating system is basically a series of configuration files and can be deleted and recreated um, very easily. And I guess this takes some borrowing from container models, but takes it to an extreme that your entire machine can just be moved around through a series of configuration files. I think it could only really work with Linux. Uh, I don't think it could work with macOS or Windows. Uh, not yet anyway. Well, I suppose Windows has that uh, concept of, or used to anyway, the sort of network images that... Um, that administrators could uh, push out across a across a, a network and things like that, but it's not quite the same. So there's an article here that's a little bit of an introduction to the um, to the concept. Yeah, here's the uh, Fedora Silver Blue. So this is from 18 months ago, but the latest version of Fedora just pushed this out as an option. OpenSUSE has an option. Nitrux. Uh, I thought Nixos was part of this. Maybe I was wrong. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting kind of concept. Uh, I've been trying to do I've been trying to do elements of this with my own kind of setup by having as much as possible in a in a config file. Uh, like uh, Homebrew has a, a function where you can kind of output a lot of your applications as a, a config file and then use it to restore from that later. There's another command line called Macup Backup <laughs> that kind of does a similar thing, but it's doesn't cover everything. And then I suppose with things like Creative Cloud and stuff like that, where you can kind of back everything up to the cloud, it's sort of there, but it's really not quite the same. You're relying on various third parties to help you there. 
But anyway, it's an interesting concept. I would love to hear if anyone runs systems like this on a, on a daily basis. Next, I just realized these tabs are not necessarily in the best order. Um, Linux Mint, another popular uh, Linux distribution, uh, a sort of um, version of Ubuntu and Debian. Uh, incidentally, I have some interviews with the Ubuntu folks coming up soon. Um, it's a very kind of user-friendly focused Linux distribution. There has been this back and forth between um, how they package Chromium. They used to use, well, you can read the article here from Stephen Vaughan Nichols on ZDNet. They used to use Ubuntu's Chromium build, but then Canonical, um, and actually I've had previous episodes discussing the Snap Store, uh, moved everything to the Snap Store for a variety of reasons. And there's always been these various competitions to try and make a more universal packaging format for Linux instead of having all the different um, stores, or the different stores, the different uh, distribution methods. Um, that kind of makes it difficult sometimes for people to create Linux um, versions of applications because you have to create it for lots of different things. Um, and they took this attitude with Chromium to make it easier to keep up to date with each release. But then the uh, Mint, um, one of the Mint maintainers, uh, Lefebvre, did not like that method and decided to continue repackaging their own way, the, the kind of the old way. Um, but that was hard to keep up with. So, and actually they admit sort of defeat here in this paragraph of saying that they don't really like why Canonical did it or the reasons they did it or the reasons they had to do it in some respects, but they kind of agreed that um, it was potentially the right decision um, and have sort of switched back to to using um, the Ubuntu shipped version of of Chromium. So it's kind of interesting to see how. Sorry, the little bit of background noise as I'm talking. <laughs> it always seems to happen just when I am recording and when I'm streaming. Uh, our local post delivery person always seems to decide to turn up just when I start a particular stream, which is always great fun. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, so it's interesting to see how. Um, how this back and forth can happen in Linux and, and actually that it happens publicly. So you can kind of always uh, keep up to date with the reasons behind things. Okay, um, another one from ZDNet from Daphne Le Prince Ringeau. Try go that pronunciation. Um, this is actually quantum computing. Um, but the reason I like this post and I have highlighted this post is it actually talks about some practical applications of quantum computing. We've been hearing a lot about quantum computing is going to solve this problem and that problem being great for this and great for that. But it's often been difficult to understand what that's actually going to mean. And there's some interesting examples here in collaboration with D-Wave, who I have interviewed in the past, actually, a little way back from a Mobile World Congress a couple of years ago. Uh, partnerships they had with a couple of companies here, specifically a Canadian grocery chain. Uh, this save on foods up here um, about what they're actually doing with quantum computing. And that is interesting and how they're actually solving the problem. And yeah, quantum computers look so cool. It's like something out of Star Trek, this picture here. <laughs> You'll have to uh, find the article or go to the video version to see that. That's quite fascinating. Uh, and yeah, it was just a really interesting post to actually read some practical uses of um, quantum computing. All right, now let's sort of get into slightly different um, 
topics here. Uh, this is one from CNET, but was reported in a few different places from Stephen Shankland uh, here, uh, which is a sort of business-to-business mapping company. I actually used to contract to them. They have uh, an office here in Berlin, not too far away from where I am now. Um, and you've probably used their map without realizing a lot. And what three words, which I do believe from memory are a British company who I have met as well. I haven't interviewed. I haven't interviewed here either. Um, and they're partnering together to provide what three words in car, na- in, in car navigation, which is what he predominantly specializes in. Um, and what three words is actually divides the world into uh, a lot more um, sections, shall we say. So you can actually get very specific directions to a very specific part of a building, for example, not just one address for a very large building and then be quite lost once you get there. And so I find this very interesting for what three words and for here. Here, um, and maybe have been struggling in recent years to stay uh, relevant with a plethora of people just using smartphones. And what three words have actually been growing. They they are the official uh, address system for several small countries, actually. It's quite fascinating. And they've been more and more popular, I think, as people have realized uh, why they're useful. Um, and so to see the combination here and coming into people's cars could be interesting. And, and also to find out, uh, you know, how people find using it. Uh, so it's a small article, but I'd be very interested to see um, how people like it. Uh, and I didn't actually realize this. Google has their own um, technology here. And there is also, of course, latitude and longitude. But what three words is quite simple, even though it's sometimes quite comical. And I do remember speaking to them about how they generate these uh, word choices <laughs> all right um this is not really something i can describe so much on the audio version if you're listening along but this is from amit katwala on um, wired uk some amazing photos here of life on board the international space station and it always amazes me because it's so much is exposed there's just so many wires and buttons and cables and also and i remember there was a, a um a British uh, astronaut on um, a podcast recently and them describing in theory how old-fashioned the International Space Station is. I mean, it's amazing. It's this thing floating in space, but looking through some of these pictures, you can see that, like, you know, it looks like technology from 10 years ago or so, which it effectively is, and it's expensive to replace. Um, this is kind of cool to see. It's just, oh, it looks, this top picture right at the top, Um of the post it's just like there's so much I, I don't understand he can't be breaking everything all the time there's just so much stuff and exposed cabling and all sorts of things yeah i think it looks very claustrophobic as well <laughs> and this is actually an article from the telegraph i need to uh, hang on clear some look behind my camera clear the uh, cooking notification there this is from james titcomb on the Telegraph, uh, but this was widely reported as well, um, covering how a lot of the uh, campaigning around Proposition 22 happened in the US as also one of the votes as part of the recent election. Um, I'm not really going to go into masses of detail on Proposition 22 because it's been covered in many places and also... I, uh, it's not something that directly affects me, so I'm not massively kind of knowledgeable of the subject. But I think 
The the more interesting angle here was the discussion around should these various applications that have that are strongly dependent on an app, you know, you use an app to order a car or food or deliveries or whatever, be allowed to just push basically their own propaganda to users all the time. And this is kind of more the discussion. And then where do you stop? I mean, some will quite frequently push out discounts and things like that. Is that okay? Versus a political message, where does one begin and one stop? And like, what's the what's the differentiation between a political message, kind of, and um, news or an announcement or, or product announcement or discounts or things like that? So how do you differentiate what they should and shouldn't be able to do with this very large user base they instantly have access to? That's quite a fascinating discussion. I'd love to hear your opinions on it if you're interested in, uh, in giving me some feedback on that. And finally, I don't know why this keeps popping up in my feed. <laughs> this is from Ben Sherlock on Screen Rant. And um, I did find it quite interesting to read that many years ago, the Beatles wanted to make a version of Lord of the Rings uh, directed um, by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> and it never happened, of course. But it's been quite interesting reading about what could have happened and the people involved. And yeah, so it was uh, Paul as Frodo, Ringo as Sam, George as Gandalf and John as Gollum which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, and the Beatles were somewhat involved in, well, they obviously had their own films. Also, George Harrison invested in a lot of uh, Monty Python films and various other films as well. Apparently, Stanley Kubrick was not interested at all <laughs> and turned it down, um, which is interesting. Uh, he did. He had been um, directing Lolita and Doctor Strangelove at the time. There is a little bit of a strange connection between Peter Sellers and the Beatles via kind of George Martin, their producer. He used to produce a lot of the comedy records uh, that uh, John Lennon was, sorry, not John Lennon, that, um, I mean, oh. <laughs> Peter Sellers was involved with. Um, the Beatles were going to write the soundtrack, of course. And yeah, sort of people were on board, but it, it never really happened. In fact, I love this quote. Stanley Kubrick believed the book was unfilmable. Which is interesting that Peter Jackson. Effectively, strange if you look at some of these photos of Stanley Kubrick. Peter Jackson and Stanley Kubrick do share some similar looks as well. So, <laughs> and also then the Tolkien estate. Um, I think he was still alive at the time. Uh, he also didn't want them to do it. So it could have been cool, but um, it was never going to happen. And then, in a nice connection back to our ISS article, he then went on to direct 2001 instead, which was actually a bit trippy in its own. Right, I suppose. So that was my links for the week. I hope you enjoyed those. And now is my interview with uh, the two co-founders of Pixie. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of Pixie. Um, just a quick background about myself before this. Uh, well, actually, concurrently, I'm also an adjunct professor of computer science at Stanford. And prior to this, um, I used to be at Benchmark as an EIR. And uh, before that, I was in Google's AI team. And, and prior to that, I have a whole bunch of experience working on machine learning and, and data systems. Um, a little bit of background about Pixie. So we started Pixie, um, Sean and I started Pixie in 2018. And uh, we're, uh, you know, we're primarily focused on building developer tools that allow software engineers to monitor, uh, debug, and, and troubleshoot their applications. Uh, that run on Kubernetes clusters without having to to modify their their source code. Um, yeah, with that, you know, Sean, maybe you could do a quick quick background and 
So quick uh, introduction myself. My name is Ishan Mukherjee. I'm the other co-founder along with Zen and the chief product officer, increasingly focusing on building out the community around Pixie. Uh, prior to us starting the company, I was one of the product heads at Apple for working on Siri, uh, specifically growing out the knowledge graph. And similar to Zen, my background's uh, been in data systems, machine learning, um, ranging from kind of robotics systems to data systems, machine learning systems, and in both engineering and kind of product capacities. Um, and yeah, I've been in the industry at the same uh, for the same duration as as, as Zen, about uh, about a decade. So excited to talk to you about Pixie. I- it's so actually it is I had a I had a second question I wanted to ask you but something that you both said that intrigued me I think um it might be worth going down first is you say so you both come from very strong machine learning AI backgrounds and I mean traditionally a lot of the um a lot of the kind of um the, the platforms that give you insights into Kubernetes clusters are very much sort of static, give you metrics, give you numbers, give you dashboards, et cetera, et cetera. But you both come from this AI machine learning background. So is that something different you're adding? It's not just plain reporting. It's something on top of that. Or is that just your backgrounds? Is there something more you're also doing over a lot of the, a lot of alternative platforms for this? Yeah, I can add a little bit, and John, um, feel free to jump in. Uh, so, so on our side, I guess specifically for for me, I primarily worked on kind of like two parts of machine learning, right? Like building systems that actually do do machine learning at scale. Uh, but I've also worked a lot on like actually applying machine learning to systems and trying to optimize systems. So, part of what we want to do with Pixie, right? I think the first thing of like the first part of most like machine learning systems is actually getting access to the data. So, a lot of what we've been focused at focus on at Pixie is how do we actually make it easy for us to get instant visibility and access to data like right away. And we utilize uh, technologies like eBPF to basically grab like all the raw HTTP, gRPC, um, along with, you know, databases and and other calls without actually having to do any work. So one of the things that we established is like just this rich baseline visibility of data without having to to modify our applications or relying on like a a specific language library to, to instrument it. Um, now that we've actually got most of that in place, part of what we're actually looking into um, and, and have actually actively built out is, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit onerous for everyone to go look at every single transaction that's occurred in the machine and try to, like, understand where the variations are and what the patterns and trends are. So part of what we do right now is on the actual machine that's capturing the request, we will go and, like, featureize the request and be like, okay, does this message have a user ID? And if it does have a user ID, can we like group it into like a specific group of users, and then um, use that information to generate like profiles and schemas uh, for uh, for the messages, along with like their performance characteristics, and then we can use that to enable like smarter sampling, um, right? Because it's like infeasible for us to ship every HTTP request out of the machine because uh, it's just a lot of data. So we're like, okay, what are the most interesting requests for us to save, save and archive as like exemplars? along with all the trends necessary to, to understand the data. Um, so, so yeah, I think uh, part of Pixie's promise is actually to do a lot of this machine learning uh, and, and hide it, in some ways, hide it behind the scenes so we can actually enable the use cases without having to worry too much about what's actually, what's actually happening from an ML perspective. Right. Like, 
yeah, just to add to that, like, and ultimately the way we are modeling machine learning from an end product experience perspective is kind of surfacing features and capabilities which aid the developer's debug workflow, right? So instead of trying to replace them, the idea is like instead of using 16 steps to debug an incident, what if we exposed features which made it 13 steps, 12 steps, right? So the idea is to augment their workflow versus kind of uh, seeking out uh, uh, the ultimate answer. And I think that will come in, in generations ahead, but right now it's extracting uh, features which allow you to facet data products or, and or sample better as, as Zen mentioned. I guess part of the core idea I was gonna say is like this idea of like intelligent augmentation, right? Like the goal really is just to like enable developers to work with data more efficiently rather than, you know, give them the answer. Because I, I think trying to give people the answer on a, a complex system is gonna be very difficult because there's just too many factors that move around and it's hard for us to understand all the, the details. Does Pixie go, um, how, how far down does it go? Does it also do application level or some, I can see Golang logging. Um, is it some application level or, or not or? Yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff we capture out of the box, right? Which is, um, you know, which are things like all the system metrics, all the, the uh, you know, level seven protocol stuff like HTTP, gRPC, whatever. So we, we capture all of that like as a baseline and tie it to like a specific service or pod that's running in your system. Uh, one of the things we allow you to do is as you're narrowing down where the issue is on certain languages like Go and C++ and Rust, uh, we actually allow you to dynamically add logging. So if an application is already deployed and in the production setting, typically what you would have to do is, you know, go make changes to your source code and then get it reviewed get it checked in, wait for a deploy to happen, and then hope that the log will give you some useful information. It's a pretty typical, typical workflow. Uh, one of the things you can do with Pixie is that you can say that go and dynamically add a log to, to some function in the source code, or some function in your Go binary, and it will actually automatically add that while the binary is running, and then be able to dump out information. That's pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, so in some ways, you know, you can think about that that specific aspect as like trying to do like GDB or something on the fly, but yeah, that's yeah. like a lot more risky. You've got to stop the binary. We we use eBPF to actually patch the binary to essentially allow us to intercept the data in the middle, so it actually doesn't mm -hmm. stop the. the... And um, how how does Pixie fit into and and compare to some of the other? tools you might use to troubleshoot an application on Kubernetes. And they're all slightly different, doing different ways, but there's, there's quite a few options. So what, what, what does Pixie give me over a lot of the other options that are currently around? Yeah, I can take that. So, so as, I, as it's pretty consensus, kind of observability space is quite noisy and there's a lot of different tools out there. The way we think about our place in the ecosystem is as an extension to establish monitoring platforms. So if you look at the current state, you would have tools like Splunk, New Relic, Datadog, which are essentially your monitoring platforms, which, uh, which have access to metrics, traces, logs. Um, and so the unique value proposition that we, de we deliver is specific to the application developer uh, who traditionally use products like APM, this idea of instant access to live telemetry without any instrumentation. 
So Pixie focuses on the application developer persona. The product is close to an APM. And the unique value proposition is no instrumentation, live data. We we give you access to 24 hours of granular data with historical trends, but that's kind of our wheelhouse. If you want more data for compliance or governance, those are use cases that we currently don't focus on. So if you're a customer, let's just say a gaming company in the UK or a streaming company here in the US, you already have your code base instrumented uh, with custom metrics, piping data into an open source stack like Prometheus or, or a SaaS product. They install Pixie to basically kind of, as I mentioned, give blanket visibility to all workloads have, uh, working. And then it's, if you're working with Go and C++, give this really novel uh, kind of deep forensic uh, that was pretty impossible to do before. So what we're seeing is Kubernetes platform infrastructure teams is baking Pixie into their uh, platforms by default. It gives them this kind of instant visibility. And then application developers use our UIs, native UIs to debug, to do live debugging. And if they would like to forward the data into other systems, we expose an API to do so as well. So again, we are an extension to established uh, systems. And, and this is kind of good in the long term. It means you don't have to get too bogged down in um, data storage and things like that. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. I, I think that that's an evolution as well. Like obviously our near-term focus is on this live data use case. Uh, over time, like as the developer community kind of uh, looks into looking at cold data or historicals, we uh, we will have discussions that are kind of going into that. But we're starting off with this kind of uh, essentially live debugging use case. Yeah. So I'd like to go back a step kind of to the story. So, I mean, Pixie as a, as, a, as a company, you said you've been around since 2018, but you kind of were very quiet and then suddenly seemingly appeared out of nowhere in the past couple of months. <laughs> seemingly, of course, that's always. And have sort of done reasonably well on funding rounds and things like that. So what's, I mean, let's go back right to the beginning. What was the... What was the problem that you were trying to solve when you first started creating Pixie and why? Like, what gave you the idea in the first place? What gaps did you find that you wanted to fill? Cool. So uh, I, can, I can take a quick stab at it and, and uh, Sean, feel free to, to add more details on your side. Um, so when we were first, you know, start, so I was an EIR benchmark and Sean and I teamed up. When we first started thinking of ideas and started building things out, um, one of the things I guess I have been pretty spoiled by is just like the infrastructure level support we had at Google, right? Like when we were building stuff, usually you got lots of visibility and things just happen for you automatically and you don't think too hard about it. Um, outside, it's a, it's a little bit of a different story, right? Like you have to go add a lot of instrumentation, do a lot of monitoring yourself, uh, so, you know, we had both built at scale systems and part of what we wanted to do was actually make monitoring those at scale systems easy, um, and make it more like, you know, magical and, and automatic. And that's kind of the premise where, where Pixie started. And originally we were going, you know, hard after like, okay, let's take a look at BPF and how do we actually build BPF based collectors? Um, you know, that, that was like an interesting new technology that allowed us to go and, and access data. Um, and ultimately, you know, we started collecting so much data, we needed to build like a different type of system to be able to handle and process it. Um, and uh, we managed to be able to create an abstraction layer, which was Pixie scripts, 
that basically allowed us to, to very quickly uh, build out the system uh, and make both the instrumentation and data processing programmatic. Right. And then just from a timeline perspective, like since kind of inception, kind of mid, late 2018, last, like 2019, we we kind of focused on building out the platform. Um, this is kind of a reinvention of the entire stack. So there's like the collection uh, layer of the cake, the compute lives inside in the cluster and the UI, as I mentioned, is all API driven. It's a significant, it's an ambitious kind of uh, bet to kind of re-architect uh, uh, kind of the observability stack. So, so it takes time. So we kind of spend that, spend 2019 focus on that. One thing we'd add is that we did have, we worked with customers in that process. So we had early customers. And then in May of this year, we started an early access beta. So when you, when the launch happened, the first week of October, um, we, we had a handful of enterprise paying customers who deployed Pixie at, at scale in production. They're all paying. And from a community standpoint, we had tens of teams, uh, uh, ranging from a Netflix to a segment, like in our community. Uh, and now that's kind of scaled up to like hundreds of teams. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, um, so you've announced this, uh, where are we? get the the right words uh the pixie community is that open source is that basically just another word for the open source version or is it something more yeah yeah i can i can talk from a packaging standpoint so pixie as it stands today is a freemium SaaS product um so as we as we say like if you uh, if you look at pixie as a three-layered cake the our ingesters and our scripts are open source, but the core engine is 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 not open source. We do we do have plans to kind of probably kind of uh, looking into open sourcing that, but currently uh, it's kind of a it's a freemium SaaS product. Um, and so in terms of what the Pixie community is, Pixie community is essentially a free forever offering of that. Uh, the idea is for developers across the world they could essentially deploy Pixie at any scale, whether that's thousands of clusters or a couple of couple of nodes or Minikube without uh, needing to pay us ever. So what that experience is, is you can install Pixie in any Kubernetes cluster, you get all of the open source scripts. Um, so you get out of the box value and essentially you can kind of use Pixie. Um, the paid tiers are mostly priced on the breadth of your deployment and or uh, team specific scripts. So if I am, uh, I'm, a, I'm a team, I would like to have team specific scripts, you would have a repository created for you to create whatever, like uh, Acme org uh, scripts. And for enterprises uh, at certain scale, because we get deployed and kind of hundreds of nodes, kind of thousand node clusters, um, there are performance security and scaling scaling optimization that we worked on that we offer for that. Yeah. So if I look inside the Pixie GitHub repository, that's basically scripts to kind of bootstrap a a Kubernetes cluster somewhere. It's it's nothing else. There's no runtime or anything like that. Right. Like the pixel scripts directory there are essentially scripts that we seeded and then the com uh, kind of community contributed scripts. So we have a community uh, who we call it Pixie Knots. Uh, we do monthly calls, next calls next week. Uh, so if, if a developer, say, say in Poland, writes a script to debug slow MySQL queries, they can contribute it back so that Anybody in the world using Pixie can essentially kind of access that, right? So the idea is to codify debug workflows in into these programmatic scripts. Okay, so these Pixie scripts that you mentioned earlier are individual components for debugging certain things. So I might write one for, well, 
a b- bunch of different things, but yeah, okay, yeah. and they integrate. So you could either, okay. you know, a lot of times, I think we see Facey scripts for two different things. One of them is around specific infrastructure components like MySQL or Postgres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if you take a look at some of our, our customers have actually taken some of those scripts and customized it for their own yep. systems. Okay. Like they're yep. like, oh, I want to know what the latencies are for my different customer groups. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, I mean, so for a relatively new company, um, you've obviously, you have good background, you have some good advisors as well, some uh, relatively uh, well-known names in, the, in this kind of, I don't know, cloud native, large scale computing, whatever we want to call it, um, ecosystem. Um, what do you think? Um, I don't mean this in a negative way. <laughs> what did they? What did they see in the in the in the product that made people want to invest in this reasonably new um, new project? Um. So I think part of what we have been trying to narrow down at Pixie is, is, you know, just having this focus on like the developer side, which I think is relatively unique across. I mean, it's not, you know, it's still a crowded space, but it's like relatively unique across the most observability tools that our ultimate goal, while we provide like the broad level of visibility for SREs, our ultimate goal is to be able to enable software developers to actually debug applications in production. Um, and I think that's been our, our tight focus from the very beginning. So that, that's like a big, big part of it. Uh, I think just the, the idea around this like instant visibility and the ability to create this like community flywheel is like another big aspect of, of uh, uh, where Pixie is. Right, I think save, saving developer time and just kind of focusing on the ultimately the developer experience that we deliver is the product, um, the eBPF based uh, collection, the Edge AI ML, and the APIs are the service of of delivering that experience where developers can essentially stop worrying about setting up all of these tools uh, and kind of get an seamless experience. Okay. And I mean, this is always a bit of a big question, especially as you've just sort of released something, <laughs> but as a relatively um, early days, I'm guessing you're moving quite fast. Um, what's on the roadmap for the next six months to a year? Yeah, so I think for us on a, you know, we're obviously building like like crazy still, so that hasn't actually slowed down. Um, in, in terms of big stuff, we've been focusing a lot on, on scalability of Pixie on, on really large clusters. We're deployed on some pretty large production clusters now, but as with most systems, right, it's, it's a work in progress to get it to work at scales of thousands upon thousands of nodes. Um, so we have some stuff around there. Uh, we're working a lot on, you know, smarter machine learning and stuff for, for sampling. Uh, that's another area. Um, we've been doing a bunch of interesting work on trying to improve and build better tracing uh, within Pixie without actually having to do full span annotation. So that's something you'll probably see coming out in a, in a few months. So those are kind of like the, the big items other than like, you know, the standard focus on like improving the out-of-box experience and uh, and when I say that, I just mean like the immediate usefulness out of the box of, of Pixie. Right. I think uh, we, we think we're kind of just fo- focusing on those will um, get the kind of community flywheel going and to a path where kind of Pixie is ubiquitous amongst kind of developers building on top of Kubernetes. And that's kind of uh, that bottoms up developer driven growth is what we focused on. The one thing I'd certainly like to ask, because I, I dig around uh, documentation and it's not there right now, but your main kind of um, contributor 
workflows for these scripts. Um, what, what's your recommended pathway at the moment if someone is interested in, in writing, in contributing one of those Pixie scripts? It looks like at the moment it's mostly have a look at an example and try and figure it out. But is there a right. recommended path you? Yeah, I think I think I think that's that's good feedback as well. Like you're working on a lot of new learning content to kind of uh, absolutely like lower uh, the learn kind of help people along the learning curve to to write and contribute um, kind of pixel scripts. As of right now, I think the GitHub repo has a, a readme file which describes it, and then documentation we have exemplar kind of tutorials. Uh, but like we're coming very soon. Our our folk our folks are w working on kind of more learning content that, uh, that'll come through. The best resource right now, being an early stage company, is for interested developers and operators to become part of a community. So we we build and kind of iterate out uh, out in the open. So we have a Slack group uh, called the Pixie Our Community. We meet once a month uh, on calls, and that's how um, we iterate fast. But your points were well noted that uh, uh, we need more kind of knowledge content and, and that should be coming soon. Okay, cool. All right. Um, interesting. I I have another live stream I do where I actually like try a, try developer tools as well. So I'll, <laughs> I'll add this to the list. I like to try and time the stream and the podcast reasonably close to each other so they can kind of fit together. Um, but yeah, um, can you, can you run it on a, on a local machine and get some meaningful metrics or, or not really, do you think? <laughs> By local machine, do you mean, uh, not Kubernetes or you mean like mini cube? Well, like a mini cube or something like that. Yeah, you can. Um, but usually I think. To run like most of the meaningful demo applications, yeah, well, of course, uh, probably have a larger it's, cluster. It's always the problem with large scale stuff. Like testing it is always a pain because it's like, yeah, <laughs> to 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 have this quick test, rig up a cluster with all this gigabytes of data storage and all this memory, and this is like, I just want to test it, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, you don't need it for anything that low scale either. So it's kind of hard to know sometimes. But yeah, um, all right, cool, okay, well. Um, Good luck with everything. And um, when when do you think um, the 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 sort of public beta will? Have you got a vague timeline for when the public beta will be over? Or I think when roughly, you get enough feedback? roughly we're planning kind of if you want Q two kind of next year. So early next year, you should you should hear from us. Uh, I think the, the we because we ran the early access kind of private beta and then with the public beta. Uh, we, the feedback's been pretty amazing. It's mostly around kind of building out the features around uh, the uh, the paid paid products and and stuff. So uh, and getting the community to a critical mass. Um, so, but we, yeah, we should launch that early next year. That was my interview with the co-founders of Pixie. Hope you enjoyed that. Now, a few small updates from me. I have been very busy the past few weeks taking part in NaNoWriMo. I actually have a, a daily. Not today, I had to cancel it, the day of recording, because I had to cancel it. Sometimes just work things get in the way. But I'm basically doing pretty much a daily stream where you can watch me write. I don't know how interesting it is, and I listen to music, which has meant that all my uh, videos have been defunded by YouTube and Facebook, but um, fine. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I wasn't really looking to get those videos uh, uh, ad-ready anyway. So doing um, daily sessions, uh, usually around uh, 11 a.m., 
Central European time every day. I may change some of those times later. Um, and yeah, you could watch me right. I looked on Dexpose last week at Builder Plugins with Netlify, which is quite interesting. Uh, I am about to record a new um, solo adventure this week, part two of, of Creatures Such As We. Uh, we also just recorded, finished recording episode four of Stories About People, and episode three should be released in the next week or so. Likewise, episode three of Board Game Jerk, so that's coming out soon. Um, you can also watch my video. Actually, this my site needs some slight updating. I recently put out a special sponsored video with What's New in Snagit 2021. You can find that on my YouTube and um, Twitch feed for Dexpose at the moment, but I'll get it on the website soon. Um, I feel like there's something else. Oh, yeah, I'm back doing the um, Crit Test Dummies on Twitch. Um Dungeons and Dragons live stream, so you can also watch that. Uh, What else? What else? Um, I'm nearly finished with some blog posts, a whole bunch of other things, recordings for some videos, lots of things in preparation. But NaNoWriMo is taking up a lot of my time at the moment. So head on over to christianschiller.com to keep up to date with what I'm up to, to get in touch, to support what I do. Always appreciated. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, share, give me feedback to any of my... uh, any of my various um, outlets where you can find me. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Until next time, thank you for joining me.